0: Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we are talking about face yoga, one man's ride across Canada for his grandson's neuromuscular disease, also talking about vitamin D deficiencies, and lots more. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now.
1: And now, Maureen's Health
0: Headlines. August is Spinal Muscular Atrophy Awareness Month. You might be wondering what spinal muscular atrophy or SMA is. It's a rare neuromuscular disease that causes progressive loss of muscle and function if left untreated. We're going to talk to Bernard McNeil. He's a 68 year old grandpa who's cycling across Canada going from Vancouver to Montreal to raise awareness and funds about spinal muscular atrophy or SMA. But Before we talk to Bernard, we're actually going to talk to his daughter, Claudia McNeil. Claudia McNeil is the mother of the main motivator behind Bernard's journey, her son, Malik. Good evening, Claudia. Thanks so much for joining me on the line. It's my pleasure. So spinal muscular atrophy, it's uh, a progressive neuromuscular disease causes loss of muscle and function if left untreated. It must be a very challenging condition for a child and, and a big disappointment as well when you learn that your child has a progressive neuromuscular disease such as SMA.
2: Yes. Well, when we had the diagnosis at, uh, when Malik was four months old, uh they, the doctors told us that uh most kids with this condition uh, type 1 which is the most severe form of SMA like my son has uh most of the kids don't um, li- live past their the age of 2 years old so that was pretty devastating for us but the first uh, thing we thought is what are the solutions and then we got in uh like a clinical trial and since that day, he's been doing, well, fine. He's progressing and he, he's now at nine-year-old uh, and he's, uh, he's a pretty happy boy.
0: <laughs> That's great. And when you say he's progressing, do you mean that the clinical trial has helped him and he's progressing as any nine-year-old should develop or is his disease progressing?
2: Yeah, it's he's uh he's progressing well i mean he's uh, gaining uh, strength in his muscles so uh before the treatments uh of course he was a baby but he couldn't hold his head up uh he couldn't lift his arms to grab a toy or uh, kick with his legs and now he can uh, he can uh, sit by himself he can uh, grab objects uh he can well taste some food with his mouth because he cannot swallow pretty well so he's uh he's uh, fed through a g tube Um, and uh, now he's uh, able to participate to transfer himself from his bed to his wheelchair. So he's moving around in a wheelchair, so he's not like a typical nine-year-old, but he goes to school in a regular class. He has uh, somebody that helps him in school to open his pencil case and uh, stuff like that.
0: And, And this is awesome, and this is the result of a clinical trial that he was enrolled in
2: yes but now this uh medication is now approved uh it's been like four or five years that it's approved in canada and uh he's continue uh, he continues to receive it and uh he's continuing to make make some progress with uh physio and uh, um occupational therapists and
0: uh so he needs to exercise to get more strength as as we all do. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. And it's not easy to be motivated or inspired to do that. Now, this medication that you're speaking of, is this available to all Canadians? Is there a cost associated with it?
2: it there's a big cost associated with it. Uh, it's about uh, 300000 per year per person. And uh, it's offered in some provinces, but not in all provinces in Canada. So here in Quebec, we are very lucky because uh, this the, this medication, which is called Spinraza, can be offered uh, through the government uh, to every people that want to receive it, so child and adults and babies. But in some provinces, uh, there are still some people that don't get Access to this medication, and that's a Which... bit why my dad is crossing over the country to bring awareness and to uh, and motivate the government to uh, give access to treatment to everybody.
0: I was wondering um, if that was the one of the other reasons that he is riding across the country. Um, it's got to be difficult to parent a child with a progressive neuromuscular disease that's also very rare. So maybe people don't even understand um, what it's all about. I imagine his classmates are learning a a wonderful lesson of compassion and empathy. But as his mom, um, what's it like for you? I I know you sound so hopeful and so optimistic and positive, um, but what is life like for that, uh, for you, um, navigating a child who has a Neuromuscular disease. Well, it's
2: pretty challenging. Uh, at first, uh, the first two years, I had to stop working and uh, to take yeah. care of him because he was often sick. And he got uh, whenever he was sick, he needed to go to uh, the hospital and be like two weeks or two three weeks in the PICU. And then with the medication, he gained more strength in his respiratory because this disease affects every muscle of the body. So the respiratory uh, muscles, uh, like the lung function, the swallowing function, the speech. So uh, at first, he was really often sick and often in the hospital so I had to stop working but now he's gaining strength so uh, he still needs some respiratory treatment uh, every morning and every night before he goes to sleep Uh, but usually that's that's it for the respiratory treatment while at first it was like every four hours and when he was sick every four hours of uh, breathing treatments And um, he still needs to be fed by G-tube. So uh, um, he had an operation, like a surgery, when he was uh, 14 months old to uh, help him gain weight, and uh, he's still fed by this G-tube. And um, he still needs to exercise to speak perfectly, to be... um, Heard, but like to be uh, understood by his uh, classmates because sometimes he has some difficulties to pronounce some sounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, otherwise, and that is uh, his ability to learn uh, math and uh, French, and it's pretty. It's normal, so he can follow the same uh, um, learning program as. a child of a 9 year old here 9 year old here in Quebec.
0: Mhm and it must be as parents we worry you know whether our children are too cold if they go outdoors without a jacket um, or when they go out as teenagers at night. Um, So it must be a lot of worry for you um, as well, but it sounds like you're just an amazing mother. Um, Thank you so much for sharing all that great information. Uh, Before we go to break, I do want to introduce your dad, Bernard McNeil, 68 years old, cycling across Canada for SMA. Thanks so much for joining the program tonight, Bernard.
3: Okay. Thank you.
0: You're very welcome. Um, so what has inspired you? Uh, we're going to go to break. We only have about 30 seconds here, but, um, what is your main reason here for raising awareness about SMA? My
3: mm-hmm. main reason uh, to oh. to be here for raising awareness is, uh, that every, uh, it's not every provinces that uh, give access to adults for treatment and, uh, to try to find a better cure, so I'm here for fundraising too. Uh, so far, we have raised uh, twenty thousand so, and we, I'd like to that to continue to grow, to help uh, cure SMA Canada, uh, so uh, more uh, uh, research can be done and find better product to help uh, every people who has SMA.
0: My guests are two people who are passionate about raising awareness about a progressive neuromuscular disease that has affected one of the children in their family, the grandson of Bernard McNeil and the son of Claudia McNeil, who you were just listening to. Spinal muscular atrophy is a progressive neuromuscular disease associated with so many issues. Of course, we use our muscles to do everything. But Bernard McNeil, a 66-year-old, not 68, as I said in the previous segment, is cycling across Canada from Vancouver to Montreal to raise funds and awareness about spinal muscular atrophy. Thanks so much for staying on the line with me, Bernard. So you mentioned that you were raising awareness and funds and so that money can be used uh, toward research. So are you a cyclist? Is this something that you've been doing for a while?
3: Yes, I'm a cyclist since the age of 11. Uh, I, I used to go to tra- uh, work by cycling. Uh, I traveled uh, in Europe. I did uh, the Alps, the Pyrenees, the Dolomites. Uh, uh, I, I cycled in the U- USA. I, and this year I'm crossing Canada to raise awareness and funds for Cures in canada
0: And this is a very worthwhile cause because an SMA diagnosis or spinal muscular atrophy diagnosis at one point, as a lot of chronic conditions, you know, meant a future of devastating loss and no hope, but there have been recent medical advancements. Malik himself is on uh, a, medication that is approved in Quebec, which he's so fortunate for. So it's making it possible today for individuals with SMA to maintain their strength and have an improved quality of life. So I imagine you want to keep going, um, to toward this goal so that, uh, Malik's life can be, can improve even more and also for other children across Canada.
3: Yes, that, that's one, one of the goals, but, uh, in Canada, it's not um, every province that get access to adults. And uh, while I was crossing uh, Canada uh, since I left Vancouver, I've met a lot of uh, young adults uh, from 18 to, uh, let's say, from 18. And I saw adults of 72 years old that, I, that are, some are left aside and uh, some have access. But uh, the rules in those provinces are so tough and so hard that uh, they have to pass uh, some tests to prove that the treatment helps them. And if they lose uh, one point, uh, they lose access to treatment. And, uh, for me, it's not fair to put that much pressure on someone who's uh, already having a condition and um, when you have pressure, if I just think of me when I, I was younger and had pressure to perform at school or for the job, uh, when you have more pressure someday, uh, you're not at, at your top level because you were sick the night before or you, you are tired. But you have to perform. But when you are, when you don't have a disease, you you, you can fight harder with it. But when you're in a condition like people with SMA have, uh, mm-hmm. I think it's too much pressure on people, and they should not uh, be cut for those reasons. And Absolutely. I have-
0: No, I was just going to say a couple of points there that you made is that, you know, a lot of chronic conditions, the medication is not covered. And of course, when people have pressure, it leads to increased stress. They may not have the tools to manage their stress and makes life that much harder. So you're raising awareness and funds for not just children, but also for adults to have access to this medication. Yes. So Bernard, you left uh, from New Westminster, British Columbia, the Fraser River. You dipped your back wheel into the Fraser River to commence your journey. And you returned last night and dipped your front wheel into the St. Lawrence River. What was that feeling like for you? H- and, and how was your ride?
3: Uh, my ride was really good. But uh, for sure, there were some, uh, some days that, uh, that were tough uh, mentally and physically. Um, uh, someday, uh, there there was a lot of rain, and, uh, uh, when you, you pedal with, um, headwind, it's really, it's really hard, uh, on you physically and, uh, mentally because when you try to push and the wind pushes you twice in the back, so it, it, it's twice harder to do a kilometer. And, uh, I'm sure
0: it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, August is Spinal Muscular Atrophy Awareness Month. Where can people go? I imagine they can still donate to this very important cause. Where is the best place for people to learn a bit more about the work you're doing and also contribute to the cause?
3: The, there's two places that people can go. It, it's on my Instagram. My Instagram Page is riding for S uh, for SMALIC. This is the title of my page: Riding for Smalik, Or they can go to Le Tour de SMA in Pure SMA Canada.
0: Excellent! It's just such amazing work. Um, and Claudia, are, are you still there on the line? Yes, yes, I'm yeah. there. <laughs> you must be so proud of your dad as well to have accomplished such a tremendous feat in the name of SMA. I really appreciate both of you coming on to the show, and um, Bernard, get some rest. (laughs) Enjoy the fruits of your labor.
3: Yeah, at the end I will enjoy, but uh, the most important thing for me is that all the governments take that crossing for an example of what what we can do to help those people that are in need. I hope that will help those people to receive access.
0: you know last week i mentioned my dose of vitamin d you know there's lots of supplements and minerals and all these cures that use sciency language when they have absolutely no evidence behind them to show that they actually work for you for your back pain or for your bladder irritability or whatever it is that they're trying to sell you and that's just exactly it they're trying to sell you but you know what vitamin d is one of those vitamins that you need to take, but you don't need to take too much. And, you know, thank you to Rich who emailed me about vitamin D and, and specifically about the dosages. I said I took five 4,000 international units <laughs> and I don't take it all the time, but I kind of go back and forth. And I did notice that I was having like a little difficulty taking a deep breath whenever I have been on vitamin D. So it caused me to look into a little bit more about the recommended daily intake of vitamin D as well as any side effects. Because, I mean, I'd been recommending by a nurse practitioner to take you know 4000 international units of of vitamin D you know and I really hadn't done my own research but the recommended daily intake of vitamin D varies depend varies depending upon your age your gender, and your health status. So generally, adults need about 600 to 800 international units of vitamin D per day. And you know you get a lot from the sun, so I probably don't even need vitamin D in the summertime because I am outdoors quite a bit. Older adults may need up to 1,000 to 2,000 international units per day, but it is essential that you talk to your doctor about the daily intake that is appropriate for you and for your specific needs. And did you know that there are actually Um, side effects to taking vitamin D, which I just never really thought about. And um, one of those side effects is, or two of those side effects is nausea and vomiting. And and so if you're feeling nauseous and you've noticed that you have taken um, vitamin D, well, then you might actually want to reduce your dose, talk to your doctor, maybe receive it through other means like milk has vitamin D and other ways, but you know, you can have vitamin D toxicity. The main consequence I want to mention is um, a vitamin D toxicity or overdose, if you will, is a buildup of calcium in your blood. So it's hypercalcemia and that can cause the nausea and vomiting. It can also cause weakness, frequent urination and vitamin D toxicity might progress to bone pain and kidney problems. You might actually get kidney stones. Now I have a history of that. I don't want to get kidney stones again. So um, this is something that I need to be much more careful about. And so do you as well. Um, You know, you can get vitamin D in a variety of different Ways and so that's through food and drinks that you might consume and some prescription medicines as well and sun exposure on your skin. But vitamin D toxicity is rare, but you can kind of take too much. And if you notice while you're taking vitamin D that you have a decrease in appetite, nausea and vomiting, weight loss, constipation, dehydration, increased thirst, or what we call polydipsia in the medical field, frequent urination, confusion, lethargy, fatigue, muscle weakness, difficulty walking, bone pain, or kidney stones, you may look to your vitamin D. My point here is it's not always a great idea to take all of these supplements that people are trying to sell you. They are trying to make money. They don't oftentimes there's no evidence, there's no science behind some of these things that you are being sold. And, you know, there, if believe me, if there were cures for things, the medical profession would know about them and would prescribe them. And they do. There are certain things um, that, uh, that do work that are helpful um, for people in terms of pain or uh, discomfort, but it's really important that you talk to your doctor about the symptoms that you're experiencing and review uh, your medications and any supplements that you are taking. I had a patient, she said, or actually her husband said she has $10,000 worth of supplements in her drawer that she takes every day. And she was having a variety of symptoms Uh, that some of them may have been contributing to these symptoms that she was having around mental confusion and fatigue and weakness and constipation. And so, you know, if you are taking too much vitamin D, um, you know, basically if it, if you're toxic, if you have vitamin D toxicity, you, that mainly involves lowering the calcium in your blood. And so you have to t- stop taking all the vitamin D and calcium supplements. And people typically take vitamin D and calcium together. Uh, sometimes people need to be rehydrated with IV fluids and other times people might need corticosteroids or um, other medications in case of severe toxicity to block that bone reabsorption. So, you know, be very careful before you take any vitamin D supplement or any supplement at all, talk to your healthcare provider. Don't take more vitamin D supplements than what your provider recommends. Now, I was misguided, I have to say, and I'm so glad that I looked into this. So I don't, as I said, I don't take it all the time, but sometimes I do. I see it in the store and I take it. And you know what? They're citrus; <laughs> they taste good. Um, so you definitely don't want to take more prescription vitamin D than what your healthcare provider recommends either and of course you want to store your vitamin d supplements and any prescriptions in a safe place away from your children and pets you know if you do um are, are taking too much you notice you have nausea vomiting weight loss constipation fatigue muscle weakness you're getting kidney stones you know um you might want to lower your dose talk to your healthcare provider you, typically, the symptoms will go away, and um, but if you do have vitamin D toxicity, where it's it's very lethal for your system, the prognosis, which or which is the outlook um, for vitamin D toxicity, is generally very good with treatment. And so typically people recover without any serious complications. Um, But if you're having any of those symptoms, and if you've been taking a vitamin D supplement, then you may want to speak to your doctor, go to see your doctor, especially if you have persistent increased thirst, that can be confused with another diagnosis, frequent urination, nausea and vomiting, that can be confused with uh, diabetes. So it's definitely something you want to give a full background uh, to your doctor about what vitamins, what supplements you are taking. And of course, keep in mind that vitamins and supplements can also uh, mix with other prescription medications that you're taking, and that can cause an issue as well. So you know, these vitamins, these minerals, they are not, um, you know, something to just think, uh, oh, it's harmless. I could take this. These, a lot of these supplements that you're hearing about, um, you know, from other people, from particular type of healthcare providers, keep in mind, you know, you're paying a lot of money for them. Oftentimes, you're just voiding them out. They're just going through your system, and so you have very expensive urine. Um, but you know, think about what you're taking and actually do your research. This is a lesson in doing research on uh, anything that you decide to pick up at, at the drugstore. Um, and, uh, and decide to take and decide to treat your whatever medical problem that you're having. If you decide that you're going to go the vitamin and mineral, mineral route, that may not be the safest route. And you definitely can overdose on vitamins. Uh, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. And of course, this applies to vitamin supplements and taking an excess of vitamins can be harmful to your health, regardless of what the vitamins are. And so like iron, for example, if taken in excess, you can get nausea, bloody stools, diarrhea, dizziness. Vitamin A can lead to hair loss, liver damage, severe headaches, bone pain. Vitamin D can lead to an abnormal heart rhythm, constipation, frequent urination, muscle weakness and confusion, as I mentioned Vitamin E can interfere with the body's ability to clot blood and that can be harmful for those on blood thinning medication. And B vitamins like B6 in excess can cause nerve damage while B3 might lead to jaundice or elevated liver enzymes and nausea. That's why a complete assessment is so important. And if you've decided to buy vitamins, always follow the daily recommended dose to avoid Excess intake. Before purchasing it, I would actually speak to your healthcare provider about it and keep in mind that you get a lot of these vitamins and minerals from a healthy diet. No, you can't find them in bags of chips, although you will find vitamin K. (laughs) I learned that this week in um, chips. But um, typically, in good, healthy, nutritious food, you will be able to get all of the vitamins and minerals that you need to lead a healthy life. So, so be very careful and, you know, be very wise and do your research and don't fall for the advertising or the false promises, because oftentimes people buy these things, they throw them in a drawer, they forget about them, or they may even uh, take them, you know, after they've been expired. So these vitamins also have a shelf life. And so they're only good for a certain amount of time as well. Um, sometimes the shelf life, you know, you can extend past the shelf life, but definitely speak to your healthcare provider about that as well. And definitely mention all of the vitamins, all the minerals, all the supplements that you're taking, because if you're taking antihypertensives or, or other medications, they may mix together and you may actually have, um, you know, have other symptoms, other problems as a result of it. So, uh, sometimes people mix, you know, evidence-based medicine with natural because they use that word natural when it's not natural. It's just, that's just a marketing term. Um, and, and all these vitamins and minerals, they don't actually have to go through the rigorous clinical trials that prescription medications need to go Um, through. So we at least have the evidence, they've at least been tested and tried in clinical trials on human beings to actually see and document what the side effects are. But all we can do is with, you know, vitamin D and things like that, other vitamins, iron and vitamin E and the Bs, you know, we hear from what people report and, and people can certainly get into a lot of trouble taking some of these, um, Vitamins and minerals. So, natural isn't always natural. Um, remember, um, it's a marketing term, <laughs> and you know, when it comes to your health, you have to be very careful. You know, and we've we've gotten to an age, especially through the pandemic, where a lot of people have lost faith in the healthcare systems. It, you know, in part, politics you know, entered the healthcare world and a lot of things were politicized. And so there's less trust in medical doctors and, and in the healthcare systems. But, um, you know, this this will, you know, this takes, we do need some time to build up relationships, have transparency and, um, you know, just be honest with people and, and see, you know, I, I know some people believe certain prescription medications are worthwhile and some others they're going to direct their own care. But it's important to understand that although many herbal or dietary supplements and some prescription drugs come from natural sources, natural does not always mean that it's safer or a better option for your health. And remember, your health is your wealth. So natural or herb, well herbal supplements and vitamins are not regulated by the FDA Health Canada so there's no guarantee about their safety or effectiveness. I have one question for you. Why are TikTokers drinking laundry detergent? Yes, you heard that right. Well, this week I had an opportunity to speak with Jill Bennett of CKNW in Vancouver about this very thing. Have a listen.
4: Well, it is a bit bizarre that we are even having this conversation, but there is a new TikTok trend, and this trend has people drinking borax, which is toxic. In case you're wondering, yes, that borax, talking about borax or boric acid, these are materials commonly used in household products, things like laundry cleaning products. But it goes beyond that. They've also been used as fertilizers, in some cases, Contact lens solution and in some homes ant killers people will use borax to kill ants so you might wonder why it is this has become a trend this is day one of me ingesting borax i hopped on the borax train i jumped on the borax train Just a small example of people doing this. Joining us to talk more about the dangers, the concerns, and why these types of trends even take off is Maureen McGrath, nurse practitioner as well as host right here on CKNW. Maureen, great to talk to you once again. Thank you so much for having me. I have not jumped on the borax train. <laughs> I, I didn't think you had and I'm I'm very pleased to hear that uh, but I wanted to talk to you about but the couple of things that, that go with this Let's first start with borax what borax is, what it's used for and why you should not be ingesting it.
0: Well, well, first and foremost, I must emphasize that drinking borax or any other toxic substances is extremely dangerous dangerous, and potentially lethal. It's a toxic substance when ingested. Even small amounts can lead to severe health problems, Jill, like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and in larger amounts can lead to damage to vital organs like your kidneys or your liver. It can cause allergic reactions in some people, especially skin Um, like dermatitis, for example, and especially those who have hypersensitivity to borax. So um, it's very dangerous and there's no medical benefit. And it even says on the
4: box, doesn't it, that don't uh, get in your eyes, don't consume, keep this away from children. So it seems like it's pretty clear the warning on the box that while there are several uses for borax,
0: any kind of health care is not one of them. That's exactly right. And it can cause eye, skin, irritation, upper respiratory tract irritation. So that can lead to coughing, difficulty breathing, nosebleeds. And and so it can cause a lot of problems when it is not, when you don't follow the directions on the box.
4: So it sounds like maybe this is a hoax. Maybe somebody started this and thought, oh, I wonder if this can take off. And clearly there are some people who are doing this. I saw one of a woman saying she just puts a pinch of borax powder in water and and drinks it every day and claims that it treats her inflammation. It can treat everything from arthritis to other conditions. But how dangerous is it that people are putting that message out there?
0: It is so dangerous. And there can actually be some legal and ethical concerns because when you encourage or even participate in dangerous trends like this, it can lead to legal consequences, especially if it results in harm to yourself or to other people. And and actually, um, people may not be aware of this, but promoting harmful behaviors goes against ethical guidelines for responsible social media usage.
4: Why do you think people get taken in by this and somebody that maybe would never in a million years have thought of consuming something, a toxic substance like this, sees it online,
0: sees that it's trending and then tries it? Well, first and foremost, uh, social media... and especially TikTok trends often become viral and they spread rapidly. So it gets out to the masses and then they start to gain popularity. And because TikTok is a social media platform where users can easily see what others are doing and feel compelled to join, to be part of a trend or a community, they have what we know as FOMO, fear Mm -hmm. of missing out. And that can drive people to participate in these popular challenges, even though they might be dangerous and they're not actually considering their potential consequences. We still have peer pressure on social media from friends and influencers and also, you know, that actually can result in more likes and, you know, people want to be popular, but ultimately TikTok trends are designed to be entertaining and fun. And so they, you know, it's for pure fun. That's that's it, pure enjoyment. Maybe they're totally bored. I'm not really sure, but <laughs> It also gives people a sense of belonging, which is kind of a sad aspect of, of social media. And, you know, TikTok has a significant user base of young people who may be more likely to engage in trends as a form of expression and rebellions, rebellion against uh, the norms of society and the mores and authority as well.
4: Uh, do you think that it's also kind of a holdover or this started or maybe didn't start, but, but became more of an issue during the pandemic when there were people who were very much opposed to the vaccine there were conspiracy theories there were so many people that jumped on the ivermectin uh train that were very saying that they wanted to try this uh, this medicine that was for horses not for humans has that kind of led to for a certain group or a certain demographic a distrust of of traditional medicine so they might be more more open to to trying something like this even though it doesn't make any sense
0: absolutely and that message has spread widely as well the distrust of healthcare professionals um the pandemic unfortunately was politicized and you know we had politicians delivering messages Um, and maybe inaccurate messages or the science was changing and and people lost trust in the healthcare system. And uh, at at the beginning, healthcare providers, the nurses, if you recall, were revered. And toward the end of the pandemic, nurses were blamed for a lot of the issues associated with COVID, yet they were really the workhorse of the pandemic. And, but I, I do think for sure, this was born out of that. I think a lot of people went home, went on social media, got involved, you know, Wanted to be a part of something, and you know, people love to be, you know, anti, anti whatever, and rebellious, and and so I think that has maybe set the foundation for dangerous trends such as the Borax Challenge
4: which uh, hopefully people will read the label on the box and uh, realize that it's not a good idea. Something I learned even looking into this was I I didn't realize that if you go back quite a few years, it was actually at one point apparently used as a food preservative, but then it stopped because they realized that people were getting headaches and nausea and uh, other side effects, even uh, from consuming the food in those cases. And that's going back to the early 1900s
0: that's right and you know it's it's very toxic it's a very toxic substance the other thing about social media is people see it you know our attention spans are, are so much more limited these days so they see something quickly people don't bother to look into it i mean you took the time to research it look into it learn about it and you know people don't do that they just think i'm getting on this borax train i'm going to do this challenge uh, for absolutely no benefit Um, to anybody. And in fact, it's extremely dangerous. Um, And people need to be cautious and responsible when they're on social media, on either side of social media, and they should critically assess the safety and validity of any trend before participation. And of course, you can always go to your healthcare provider and ask them, is consuming Borax a good idea.
4: Uh, so even as we've been having this discussion, somebody has called in saying, did it not used to be tr- used to treat rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, I will fully admit my research has not gone that far, but it does not sound like Borax is a treatment for healthcare.
0: No, there's no scientific evidence to support that Borax is used for rheumatoid arthritis, but that is one of the messages that has gotten out uh, widely in, you know, and very broadly on social media.
4: Maureen, it is always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us and hope to talk to you soon.
0: You're so welcome. Thanks, Jill. I am sure you have probably heard of the medication Ozempic. Ozempic is a once-weekly medication for adults with type 2 diabetes used to improve blood sugar, along with diet and exercise, and it can reduce the risk of major cardiovascular events such as heart attack, stroke, or death in adults with type 2 diabetes and known heart disease. A lot of people as well are taking it for weight loss. Well, one person in particular, and I'm sure there's more in this country. Emily Wright is a Toronto elementary school teacher. She started taking the drug Ozempic in 2018 as a way to control her food cravings and blood sugar in her battle with type 2 diabetes. Now, we expect, and the company has said, that there are side effects, and most medications have side effects. They are typically nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, those kinds of things. But Emily had an altogether different side effect that she is joining us on the line from Ontario to discuss tonight. Good evening, Emily.
5: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. First and foremost, how are you? I'm taking each day as it comes taking each day as it comes. That's not the expected answer from somebody who's taking Ozempic, whether it be for type 2 diabetes or off-label for weight loss. You've been taking this since 2018. So tell me a little bit about why you decided to take it, how easy was it to get, and, and how, what, how your journey has been.
5: Sure. I, well, I started in 2018 as a recently diagnosed diabetic, and this was a way to control my blood sugars As you said, it's a weekly injection that I was able to take at home. Uh, My pharmacist trained me on how to uh, give myself the injection. And, you know, right away starting this medication, I experienced the typical side effects we see from any medication, including antibiotics, uh, which is the nausea, the vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. Um, However, those symptoms didn't go away for me as the medication, my body adjusted to that medication. The symptoms, in fact, continued to get worse.
0: So you were living basically with nausea, vomiting, constipation, um, and what was that like? And Were you losing weight at the time, and were your blood sugars being controlled? Yeah,
5: so, I, you know, Ozempic definitely helped control my blood sugars. It also had the amazing side effect for me of losing a large amount of weight. Uh, the medication, typically people don't lose as much weight as I was able to, but in one year of being on the medication, I was able to lose 80 pounds. 80 pounds. Which, you know, is amazing, yeah. So I went from 280 pounds before starting the medication to 200 pounds after a year on the medication.
0: Wow, that is a significant weight loss. And have you lost more weight since that time?
5: I have lost more weight since that time. Um, For a while on Ozempic, I was just maintaining. However, September 2022 um, and between November 2022, I did get a new gastrointestinal doctor who explained that the symptoms I was having, which was vomiting up to 200 times a week. Um, I was had to take a leave of absence from my job. I had to uh, rely on friends and family to do things basic like walking my dogs for me and making things uh, you know, that I could have easily access to, like soups and things that if I was able to eat, those would be my go-to. Um, and my this doctor said that when he was doing endoscopies on his patients, he was noticing that... All of his patients taking the medication, Ozempic, had a full stomach of food during the process, despite following the proper PrEP procedures.
0: Wow. So, you know, the way that Ozempic or semaglutide works is it slows uh, digestion, essentially. So it basically slows the emptying of the food in your stomach. So he was noticing that people were having full stomachs?
5: Exactly. He was noticing that they still had food in their stomach despite doing, you know, the, the fasting um, and uh, not having water a certain amount of time before the procedure. So and that was what he noticed.
0: Yeah. And also, were you having to take laxatives for the endoscopy to to empty you out? Yes. Yes. So that yes. would typically so. empty people out and they, they wouldn't do the test if you weren't emptied out, typically, um, maybe not in your particular case because it was being done for a different reason um so you were vomiting up to 200 times a day on this medication
5: sorry 200 times a week roughly yeah i was vomiting yeah 200 times a week roughly um on the medication and that really started in september 2022 for me where it got so bad i ended up hospitalized for dehydration um you know doctors weren't able to for 36 hours figure out how to get me to stop vomiting Um, And they had to try everything. All the medications they typically would use were not working. Um, And they said that I was presenting with something called cyclic vomiting symptoms, which is a a cycle of vomiting that is very difficult to interrupt.
0: Wow. And so were you still on the Ozempic at this time?
5: Absolutely not. Uh, That amazing GI doctor that I, I switched to, in the beginning of 2022, was able to take me off of the medication and the hopes that my symptoms would dissipate.
0: And your symptoms did not dissipate, I gather?
5: Unfortunately, no, my symptoms have not dissipated. It is now August 2023, and I am still sick. I still don't know when I'm going to be able to return to work. Um, And, you know, I'm now at 130 pounds. I have lost more weight from the constant vomiting. And what was your beginning weight
0: Uh, how much did you weigh early on?
5: As I started Ozempic in 2018, I was 280 pounds. And after a year on it, I was 200 pounds. Wow! So in September 2022, I was still around 200 pounds. um, And now I'm at 130 pounds.
0: 130. May I ask you how tall you are? I'm five foot four. Five foot four. So 130 is you, you really don't want to get much lower than that. And are you continuing to lose weight?
5: I am continuing to lose weight. Unfortunately, doctors aren't able to intervene on my weight loss until I reach under 100 pounds, and then I would require a feeding tube. Oh, so I'm hoping that we don't get there, and I'm trying my best to eat high-calorie foods and things that will um, help me gain a little bit more weight back, especially because now I'm also lacking nutrients, and I'm having to supplement those things as well.
0: Wow, that is just incredible. Now, um, I imagine... it. First, you went um, complaining about your symptoms. I mean, I don't know how long they could have ignored your symptoms if you're having nausea, vomiting, um, in particular the vomiting. Um, but did you feel heard the first time that you went to your doctor? You mentioned you went to a gastrointestinal doctor.
5: Yeah, no, I I definitely didn't feel heard. I felt like I also had an endocrinologist who was prescribing me the medication. And it was, you know, give it a little bit more time. The side effects will dissipate. Research shows that eventually patients are able to uh, return to a functioning level and and the side effects shouldn't interfere with their daily life. And again, that just wasn't my experience. I was so bad. As you said, I'm an elementary school teacher. And I was standing in front of my grade three and four classroom. And I had these disgusting smelling rotten egg sulfur burps. And it was the most embarrassing thing as a teacher because, of course, it's kids. What is that? What is that smell? And, you know, I'd have to try to say, I don't know what that is. Meanwhile, it was me making these disgusting smells. And it became very embarrassing um, and, and really not fair to the students that I was teaching. Uh, did- and that, those sulfur burps, just so you know, are caused by fermenting food in my stomach. So uh, the food was not able to digest properly and not able to find its way out. And it sits there and just rots in my stomach.
0: It, it just sounds horrible. Now, gastroparesis is actually the name of the side effect that you have. Uh, it's also called delayed gastric emptying, and it's a disorder that slows or stops the movement of food from your stomach to your small intestine, even though there's no blockage in the stomach or in your intestines. Now, um, did you, did you were you, is this for certain related to Ozempic? Do you know that, or semaglutide?
5: You know, that's a really good question. I have to be honest and say that we don't have any data to tell you what my motility level was, how, how my stomach emptied before I went on Ozempic. Maybe I already had somewhat of a slowed motility level and this threw me over the edge. Um, But what I do know is when I started Ozempic, these serious side effects started for me. These weren't things that I had before Ozempic. I was the normal person who just had regular IBS and, you know, had to stay away from things like garlic and, and things that maybe affected it. But I was able to live a normal, healthy life. And as soon as I started this medication, I lost the ability to function and to do, you know, basic tasks, things like showering and brushing my teeth were just, you know, a challenge.
0: Hmm, I can imagine. Um, it, it just sounds like such a, a horrific journey. Um, you did mention you had irritable bowel, IBS or irritable bowel syndrome prior to being prescribed uh, Ozempic. Correct. Um, and um, how did that impact you or your life?
5: Again, I I don't I didn't hugely impact me. I I stayed away from the foods that triggered my IBS symptoms and and I I lived a normal functioning life. Um, And, you know, there's no warning saying that you can't take this medication if you have IBS. And um, just like there is also no warning on the medication label that this causes gastroparesis. Sure, it says it has side effects, but all meds have side effects.
0: Absolutely, they do. And do you wish that you had been warned of the potential side effects and even this as potentially a side effect prior to starting the medication?
5: Absolutely. I I wish, you know, I I was warned that it can cause nausea and vomiting. But again, as I said, that those side effects as your body gets used to the medication, that they would dissipate. And that was not my experience. Um, And so I, I feel somewhat let down that doctors didn't catch on to it earlier it was more met with well, I've never had anyone have these experiences but they weren't able to connect it to the drug Ozempec and I think that also has to do with this medication is so new we don't have a lot of research on it we don't know the long-term effects of this medication and you know I don't know if I'm going to get better in a year five years ten years am I ever going to get better I don't know we just don't have enough research
0: My guest is Emily Wright. She is a Toronto elementary school teacher who was prescribed the medication Ozempic, and she has experienced such significant side effects that she's actually unable to return to the classroom. And she joins me on the line from Toronto. Thank you so much for staying on the line, Emily. You're welcome. Now, just in quick review, the experience, you experience side effects that are expected nausea and vomiting. But what you didn't expect to experience was vomiting 200 times a week upwards of 200 times a week. The doctors told you that that would go away in time once your body got used to it, but it never went away, and in fact, it got so severe. You were also prescribed this medication for your weight loss, and just in quick review, you weighed 280, and after a year, you were down to 200 pounds, losing 80 pounds. But now, today, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, because of the excessive vomiting that you've had, that you are, have lost another 70 pounds, and you're down to 130 pounds. Is that a fair way to describe your situation?
5: Absolutely. That sounds just perfectly accurate.
0: And um, so you've, a lot of doctors are prescribing this medication off-label. We're seeing a lot of TikTok stars and influencers and Hollywood, you know, saying that, who have been searching for effective and safe weight loss treatment. Um, And in fact, that search for effective and safe weight loss treatment seems never ending. But, you know, is this medication safe for everybody? That's the question. So you were prescribed this for your blood sugars. You had been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, adult onset diabetes, and also for weight loss as well? Or is that what you were hoping to gain from the medication?
5: No, weight loss was just the added benefit. It was something that I was hoping. Again, my doctor said you could lose up to 10% of your body fat. So that was an exciting um, side effect that I was hoping that I would be able to experience.
0: And so that might have been about 28 pounds or so if we're looking at 10% of your weight. Exactly. But you lost 80 pounds. Did Did you change your diet and add exercise as well or increase your exercise?
5: Absolutely, I, I did increase my exercise, but the drug Ozempic in general really took away my my feeling of hunger. In fact, I didn't feel hunger anymore on the medication. so um, I had to really force myself to eat, and when you force yourself to eat, it doesn't become a joy anymore of you know enjoying these wonderful flavors. It becomes I'm eating because I need energy to survive, um, and that was the mindset that Ozempic really helped me to achieve. I realized looking at my portions compared to my husband's, you know, mine were um, a quarter of the size, and that I was satisfied off of that amount of food.
0: And, and that's what I hear from the patients that I know who are on Ozempic or Semaglutide. Um, you know, that's what they say is that they have no appetite, they're a little bit nauseous, they their portions are much reduced from what they previously were. Um, so you didn't. It sounds like you didn't expect to lose this much weight as well. In addition to having gastroparesis, which is essentially paralysis of your stomach.
5: Right. I would never have started this medication if I knew that I was at risk of developing gastroparesis or you know, if I knew that I was more at risk of developing it because perhaps my motility level was slower than other patients on this medication. Um, I would never have taken it. That's not to say that this drug isn't helpful to many people. If you can take this medication and you're able to deal with the side effects, great on you. Losing weight is an important controlling your type 2 diabetes is also important but for me the risks of this medication outweigh the benefits.
0: In your particular situation so are you pleased with the weight loss are you nervous about the weight loss because you mentioned in the previous segment that doctors won't treat you for malnutrition I gather until you're uh, under 100 pounds.
5: I started off you know as somebody who was 280 280 pounds I had that idea and that dream in life that if I could just lose weight I would be happy. Um, and that, you know, I, I remember that feeling so strongly. And today I'm in a situation where I'm 130 pounds, I'm uncomfortable in my body. Um, I, I, you know, my nothing fits me anymore. I, I mean, the size small of clothing now, which I've never been able to fit into before. Um, it's really changed my understanding of my, my relationship with food.
0: So Emily, um so I can imagine it's a huge change for your body, a huge change for the mindset. I mean, I have a tendency to get too thin um, myself, and I think i'm not I'm not that comfortable you know I, I might feel great, but it's just like I feel a little bit better with a little bit of weight on me um but you know, a lot of people s- suffer with obesity and obesity is chronic and it's complex um, for people, and it's you know it's very challenging, very difficult for. Uh, people to lose weight. Um, You've lost a significant amount of weight. And are are you worried about your health at this stage?
5: I'm worried because I don't know when I'm going to get better. I don't uh, have any research. I've searched the internet high and dry. I've spoken to all of the doctors. There's just no research to say if gastroparesis is going to be reversed or not. I am nervous. I'm nervous. I also think it's ridiculous that I have to wait until I'm uh, so frail that I might not be able to get out of bed and wait till I'm 100 pounds and able to get the nutrients that my body so desperately needs. Um, and, you know, one way that I've been trying to keep my body functioning is I have a home health care nurse who comes into my home three times a week to provide me with IV fluids. And that's just one way that I try to keep out of the hospital and, and keep my body to have, you know, an, enough fluids in it so that I'm not ending up dehydrated and more sick. I, again, as a type 2 diabetes Diabetic, there's there's fears when di- uh, when dehydration is involved.
0: Absolutely, and are your blood sugars controlled?
5: Yes, my blood sugars are controlled. I am I do still take medication for my diabetes. I take uh, Glumetza and the medication called Jardiant. I get no nausea. I get no vomiting. I have no side effects from them.
0: Right. So you're you're off the Ozempic. Haven't been taking that for a while, but your your symptoms have not changed. Have not changed. Correct. Yes. I just want to mention that. Um, Ozempic or semaglutide. Ozempic is one of the uh, trade names. Um, It's only approved for weight loss under the brand name Wegovi. And so it's not approved for that in this country. It is um, approved for that in... Other countries, um, like the U.S., for example. But semaglutide belongs to a class of medications known as glucagon like peptide 1 receptor receptor agonists, or GLP 1 RAs. And it mimics the GLP 1 hormone that is released in the gut in response to eating. And one role of GLP 1 is to promote or prompt the body to produce more insulin, and that reduces blood sugar. So that's how it works. And for that reason, healthcare providers have been using this for 15 years. This isn't something new to treat type 2 diabetes, but in higher amounts, it also interacts with parts of the brain that suppress your appetite and signal you to feel full. And you've experienced that, Emily, is that right?
5: 100%, yes.
0: Yes. And when used in conjunction with diet and exercise, it can cause significant weight loss, which you have also Experience, But there are other benefits are a reduced risk of cancer because obesity is associated with cancer, diabetes, and heart, heart disease as well in people who are obese or overweight. Um, would you recommend people to take this medication for weight loss?
5: Personally, I would not recommend it. And people who have been reaching out to me since the news about uh, how Ozempic has affected me, I have told people that if the side effects are taking over your life, it's time to think If this medication is worth it for you Um, you know if I could be today 280 pounds again and happy healthy and working with my students in the classroom that's where I want to be I don't want to be 130 pounds and unable to work and relying on my family and friends to take care of me that's a lot right Um, so I think people really need to think it through and if you're having these side effects like things that I've been mentioning maybe reconsider if this medication is for you. You know your body the best.
0: That's great advice. I, one more question for you. Um, have you heard from other people who have experienced gastroparesis? Gastroparesis? I,
5: yeah, I have heard from other people. If uh, they're at least experiencing this, the symptoms of gastroparesis, many people don't actually have the diagnosis yet. Um, then there's also people um, who are in my gastroparesis support group on Facebook whose doctors are providing them with this medication because for them their gastroparesis makes them gain weight meaning the food isn't leaving their stomach at all and they're now gaining weight from that food that they're digesting Um, and so I I see it both ways.
0: Right it's such a complex issue and I really appreciate you coming on the program Emily really appreciate your time and I wish you all the best and and I really hope that you recover and you're able to return to the classroom to educate the kids.
5: Thanks Maureen.
0: Maureen McGrath hosting this program. As you know, I'm, uh, in addition to a registered nurse, I'm also a sexual health educator, which is why this particular World Health Organization media release caught my attention. And it relates to Canada. Several countries, including Canada, are witnessing a growing number of treatment failures for gonorrhea. This is very concerning. Gonorrhea is a common sexually transmitted Infection. It's easily treated with antibiotics such as ceftriaxone and other antibiotics like penicillin. But there is a particular strain, Neisseria gonorrhea, and that's the bacterial responsible for causing gonorrhea. It has developed a significant level of resistance to these antibiotics. The gonorrhea rates in Canada and globally have been increasing for many years. We don't talk about this because, you know, we have difficulty talking about sexual health anyway. But every antibiotic has been used, and this is one of the reasons um, that the, the strain, this particular bacterial strain, is becoming resistant to antibiotics is because every antibiotic that has been used to treat gonorrhea has developed resistance to rendering that antibiotic effective. And so that is a problem for a lot of people. You know, this type of resistance, known as antimicrobial resistance, is such an important public health concern. But we don't talk about sex. We're not comfortable talking about it, or sexual health, or sexually transmitted infections. Um, because we, if we don't talk about it, we won't get it. It won't happen. But that's not the case. The overall rates of gonococcal infection are increasing in our country, and they're increasing more so amongst adolescents and young adults. And that happens because we don't properly educate our adolescents and children and young adults from a sexual health perspective. Again, it's fear-based, but it doesn't do any good. Oftentimes, people are uncomfortable talking about sexual health because, especially with teenagers, because they think, well, if I tell them about it, <laughs> they're going to ha- be sexually active sooner. But that's not what the science says. That's not what the survey said. In fact, the surveys say that teenagers delay having their first sexual encounter if they have education around it. So it's important that you talk to your teenagers, your adolescent children, young adults about this if you haven't started the conversation already. And it's a good idea to start talking about sexual health um, early on, according to their development, in line with their development. Um, This is so important because oftentimes, especially in young women or females... They may not have any symptoms at all. Um, Men typically have a little bit more symptoms, uh, redness of the penis and um, other uh, burning sensation when voiding or urinating. They might have a yellow and or white discharge from the penis or burning or itching at the opening of the penis. And they may also get painful or swollen testicles. So it's important to mention those symptoms as well when you do the sexual health education. I mean, I do sexual health education with adults uh, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and sometimes even 90s, Um, you know, but it's concerning because for women, they don't get those signs and symptoms or they are often mild and nonspecific and they can be mistaken for a bladder infection or a vaginal infection. And so a young woman might be treated inappropriately and may not get the appropriate uh, treatment. You know, we see this sometimes when people go outside of their relationships so extramarital affairs, um, you know, and if the more people that you're having sex with, the greater risk that you may contract gonorrhea. And the other concern, let's not forget why we started this little conversation is because the antibiotics to treat this are not working. Um, women may have some symptoms, but those symptoms often cross over to other uh, symptoms as well that are related to bladder health and uh, vaginal health or, or painful sex, for example. But we do know that gonorrhea is more prevalent in men. Most people will not exhibit early symptoms, and it can easily be mistaken for a bladder or a vaginal infection. You know, the other reason that's important to treat this or any other medical condition that you have is because there can be consequences. And in the case of gonorrhea, gonococcal infection, you can have severe consequences. And it can even cause death. I don't want to be dramatic here, but it's true. It can even cause death for both women and men. And, you know, especially we're going to see those death rates increase if our antibiotics are not working. And and for women, it's a reproductive health issue as well and can affect fertility. And so the bacterium can spread to other reproductive organs like the uterus and fallopian tubes, and that can lead to infertility. And infertility is a big issue for couples, and it's so difficult to deal with. But when you have something like the root cause is an infection, an infection that can't be treated you know, it's all the more cause for concern. And of course, the infection, any infection can spread to other body parts, and it can cause symptoms like swollen joints and liver inflammation and and brain damage and sepsis. And we have to think about the unborn babies as well. They are not immune here. Infants born to untreated um, birthing parents may suffer from eye problems that can result in blindness. And so that is something that will affect them, for their entire life and so we have to be concerned extremely concerned when we have a bacteria that cannot be treated that can actually um, spread to the testicles the liver the brain the bones to our unborn children gonorrhea is the second most commonly re- reported STI in Canada a lot of you might be getting creeped out right now but you need to know these facts and these stats And the rates of gonorrhea have almost tripled from 2010 to 2019. We often think that gonorrhea is not around and syphilis is not around, but that is not the case. And the gonorrhea rates during this time period were consistently higher among men as they were amongst women. And in 2019, more than half, 51.9% of reported cases We're among people under the age of 30. That's our young people. Their futures are at stake. Their lives are at stake. Their health is at stake. This can cause lifelong consequences and also very severe consequences. There are many theories as to why these rates have increased, and I think that one of the reasons is we don't talk about this, but um, there has been a recent introduction of a more sensitive diagnostic tool for the infection called the nucleic acid amplification test and that has significantly increased the number of cases detected. So if we have better strategies to diagnose, we're certainly going to see an uprise in the condition itself and so which is which is good That's actually a good thing but it's also showing us the real picture. The real picture being that gonorrhea is a real problem in this country and the rise of antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea is probably a bigger concern than most people realize. Joining me on the line right now is a certified face yoga coach, wellness advisor, and founder of Face Yoga Renew. She is Sophia Ha, and uh, she joins me on the line. And I'm delighted because I didn't know there was a face yoga thing, and uh, I want to learn more about it, and I'm sure you do too. Sophia, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for having me on the show, Maureen. I'm so excited to be here with
0: you. Well, this is great. So face yoga. Now, I'm just going to imagine, is this something that is going to take care of my wrinkles? (laughs) Is it going to prevent me from having wrinkles? Am I going to look better? I mean, it's all about me after all. No. (laughs) What is face yoga? Am I all wrong? (laughs)
1: Yeah, so no, absolutely, Um, there are um, many, many, many aesthetic benefits to face yoga, including diminishing and preventing wriggles, but also just an all round creating a lift and sculpture to our face. So I guess let me start off with just explaining in short what face yoga is. So in short, face yoga is a form of facial exercise, just like you work out the muscles of your body to keep them toned and fit. Face yoga is working with the fascia and the muscles of your face. So when it comes to facial muscles, right, we've got 43 of them. Some of them we use habitually all of the time, while others tend to lay lazy. So a really good example of muscles we use habitually all the time. Maureen, have you ever caught yourself furrowing on your phone when you're, you know, scrolling or, you know, staring at the news? Totally. That furrow between the eyebrow. Yeah. <laughs> really, really, really typical. So, a really good example of the corrugator muscles, those are the muscles right between the brows that we use all of the time. Another really good example, and this happens to a lot of us while we're stressed, and it's happened to so many people, particularly through COVID, is jaw tension from constantly clenching those masseter muscles, the muscles of the jaw, which creates a lot of tension um, that can also be felt um, in headaches as well, because there's a correlation between the jaw tension as well as headaches. So. Face yoga is both therapeutically beneficial for things like headaches and migraines, um, and it's also really incredible specifically for, again, creating a lift and sculpture through the face, and it's In the areas of the face that tend to lay lazy, particularly the tongue muscle, the cheek muscle, um, and we see this specifically when the face begins to droop. So we see sort of those cheeks begin to flatten and fall. We develop that sort of dreaded double chin or jowl area. And facial yoga uses resistance exercises to quite literally tone and lift up those muscles as well as the fascia.
0: Now I have one question for you, I I, I talk for a living. (laughs) (laughs) Does my tongue muscle lay lazy? I don't think so, <laughs> <laughs> but I but I hope it does, int, so that um, I can benefit from face yoga. You know, this sounds great. It's a conservative measure. Getting a little bit serious here, and especially for people who suffer from migraines, I do myself, um, and um, and other issues as well, like jaw uh, uh, jaw clenching at night, in particular. Okay. That would I would imagine that would impact people's sleep, and so. How exactly does one do face yoga? You're a coach, so um, do you have to teach people in person? Is it um, virtual sessions and and can you or can you describe it verbally or on, on radio?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I do teach online and in person in regards to private sessions, I create customized routine routines specifically for people's areas of concern and then I also host online workshops um, as well as in-person workshops um, which we can you know probably put a tag in for a little bit of that in regards to how it actually works. So remember I just referred to um, the muscles in the face some of them being used all the time and very habitually while others tend to lay lazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when it comes particularly um, to the muscles that we tend to use habitually all the time. So again, the masseter muscles, those that jaw-clenching muscle, as well as the muscles between the eyebrows. We're really using acupressure as well as facial massage. So we're actually using our hands and we're using our fingers to massage and use acupressure to actually release that tension. Just like a, a massage feels amazing or a really great yoga class feels amazing, face yoga can do the same thing for you. But what's amazing about face yoga is you get the aesthetic benefit, for example, those lines between the eyebrows, you can see them smoothed out, and you get that therapeutic benefit, for example, diminishing of headaches, migraines, and jaw tension. On the aesthetic level, when it comes to those resistance exercises that I was referring to, the muscles that tend to lay lazy, so one of the muscles, one of the main muscles, the strongest muscle, one of the strongest muscles you have, is the tongue muscle. And when that tends to lay lazy, it really affects the evolution and the development of your maxilla, which is essentially one of your main cheekbones. is what creates sculpture. Same thing with the mandible, which is your lower jaw. So when it comes to resistance exercises, we're actually making a lot of funny faces to isolate and hold certain expressions. To engage those muscles that we don't use nearly as frequently. So, you said, Maureen, that you know you tend to talk all day. So, you're probably quite, quite, quite expressive, which would indicate that probably a lot of the muscles are quite, quite tensed up. So, depending on the individual, I will either teach, or the theme of the workshop, of course, um, I will either be teaching a combination of releasing and resistance exercises, or if the person has a, a ton of tension throughout their face, we may not just focus specifically on facial acupressure as well as massage. And again, the beautiful thing about face yoga is you get both the therapeutic as well as the aesthetic in one.
0: That's awesome. And, and you know, I'm extrapolating here a little bit um, or extending this benefit. Uh, can it help with things like anxiety?
1: That's a really great question. If you practice in the slow, methodical way that one should, then the answer is absolutely, okay? Because a lot of the facial expressions that we create, again, the furrowing of the brows, the clenching of the jaw, it actually sends signal to the brain that we're stressed. But we often make those expressions because we're stressed. So it's very cyclical in nature. So when we actually start massaging the face and soothing these lines and becoming aware of what our facial posture is throughout the day, we can really see that benefit of that calm as we practice. But again, it is about the way you practice. Can you imagine doing a yoga class in a boot camp style, right? Really quick, you're just sweaty, 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 moving, 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 not really connecting to your breath. The point is facial yoga is to really slow things down, to connect with your breath, to observe your facial postures, and then to start working with those tension areas to release that sensation of tension in the face, which will, yes, create a sense of calm and can certainly help with anxiety. I mean, there haven't been specific scientific studies, but from my own personal experience, And for the last five years I've been teaching, I've had so many clients tell me how much it has helped with their sleep, how much it has helped with their mental health. Because again, you know, particularly as women, we see ourselves, right. Mm -hmm. And as we, right, as we age, um, often sometimes due to stress, uh, we're not really liking what we're seeing. And, and I think particularly as women we get, we get so afraid around the subject of aging itself that I believe that face yoga is really helpful in calming the nervous system because it provides a tool where it's like, hey, there's actually something that we can do about the way in which we're aging and the way in which we're feeling about the way in which we're aging. Mm -hmm. And now
0: how often does somebody have to do this? Is is this a daily practice like mindfulness? Is it a few times a day? Is it as necessary?
1: It's a great question. So it really depends on the results you're looking for. If you're looking for something that's simply therapeutic that you use, you know, just for the purpose of calming one's nerves, their anxiety, then that can be as a, as needed um, and on an as needed basis. But if you're really looking for aesthetic results, so if you're looking for a natural facelift, which face yoga can provide, if you see my before and afters on my website, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Um, then that means it's going to be a daily practice you can take a day off, just like any other workout regime. But you want to be moving the face, and that can be with your hands or with the facial exercise, because it's really, really, really important to stimulate that collagen and that blood circulation to the fascia and to the facial muscles.
0: And this is absolutely fascinating. I wish we had more time, but we don't. But I would like to get your website, and I also want to mention that you are appearing at the CanFit Pro Global Conference and Trade Show, August 18th to 19th, and the listeners can attend in person or online. And uh, for more information, go to www.canfitpro.com. That's www.canfitpro.com. Um, but what's your website, Sophia? Yeah, my website is
1: faceyoga.com. Renew, R-E-N-E-W dot com. And you can see my online workshops there. I actually have a neck and jawline workshop coming up on the, I believe it's the 30th or the 31st of August. Um, and you can also see my one-on-one services there. Um, just as a quick note, I will be there on the 18th, but not the 19th at Campit Pro. So do come check me out.
0: Okay, wonderful. Well, Sophia, how delightful. What a What a delightful interview, and I'm so happy to learn about face yoga. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Maureen. It was a really great chat, and I hope to talk to you again sometime soon and perhaps even get our face yoga
0: on. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk@hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.